Welcome to New City Church. I'm one of the pastors here. I hope you're doing well this morning. Thank you for being with us. Um, A few announcements. Other than Women's Training Day, we've got a worship and prayer night. um, August 2nd from 6 to 8 p.m. It'll be in the cafe. And that is the week before we launch our night service on August 9th. Also from 6 to 8 p.m. in the cafe. So we're real excited about both those things. Uh, We'd encourage you to check them out. Uh, We'd encourage you to continue serving if you're serving here in the morning and then maybe attending in the afternoon. Um, We'd also encourage you to pray. Please pray. We're doing this because we want more people to know Jesus. We want to have a second service and pack both of them out. Uh, So join us in prayer that that would happen, that people would know Jesus um, through an additional worship service. And that's it. Family meal today after service, women's training day, prayer night, worship night, and um, a wonderful second service. So we'll pray today and Frisbee tomorrow night. If you want to play Frisbee tomorrow night, Ultimate Frisbee, uh, they play at 6, 6.30 at Slavin. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into the passage today. Jesus, you're a good king. Thank you for loving us. Um, thank you for uh, bringing us here today. We ask that you would use us as we go out into the world in our lives, in our homes, in our workplaces. Uh, we ask that we would hear what you would have us hear today and forget what you would have us forget. Father, may the words of my heart and the meditations of my mouth, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Uh, we praise you for you. Amen. Um, and lastly, as a part of a worship Uh, At New City, we do encourage the giving of tithes and offerings. So at the bottom of the sheet, um, on the weekly, you'll see the month, year-to-date, the month-to-date amount, uh, and then the month-to-date that we've gotten so far. So uh, please consider, if you you consider New City your home, uh, please give financially uh, to continue the work of what God is doing uh, through our church in the city. All right. Um, I'm really excited to talk about this passage today. The Lord... um, the Bible's just so good. <laughs> uh, but before I do that, I want to tell you a little story. Um, around the time of the Korean War, there was a, mo- a young man named Kim Jung Gon. Um, he had seen 2,000 of his 20,000 people um, die on the Chunaman Island, uh, murdered by the communists. They dragged him and his family outside of their village where Kim's father and wife were beaten to death and where Kim was left for dead. When he revived, he sought safety at a friend's house, and when he, then he was turned over by that friend to the communists. Only the sudden, miraculous appearance of an American ship off the island could save him, and that's exactly what happened, for the communist soldiers hurried away to battle immediately when they saw the American flag. Kim hid out in the countryside until the South Korean army captured the entire island. The communists who had killed his wife and father were arrested, but because it was wartime, the police chief had, the local police chief had the authority to kill them right away, without a trial. But in a great, surprising show, Kim pleaded with them to spare the lives of the men who had killed his wife and father. The police chief showed incredible surprise and said, this, These men killed your family. Why now do you want to spare them? Kim replied, because the Lord Jesus, whose I am and whom I serve, serve, would have shown mercy upon them. They were doing what they were ordered. The communists were spared execution because of Kim's plea. When news of his actions spread across uh, to other communist supporters in the area, Kim was later um, brought to preach to them 
to the ones that were hiding out. He went as an evangelist back to the people who had killed his family. By the time he left the mountain, by the time he left that village, the communists, many of them had become Christians, and he had planted a church with a flourishing member of 108 maturing Christians. All to the people who had killed his family. All to the people who had made him watch the beating of his father and wife. With that in mind, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is 1 Peter 2, 13-25. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as free people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if you, when you sin, are beaten for it and you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. But when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's word. You may have a seat. Um, I'm convinced that the passage that I just read is of great importance to us here in Denver, in the United States and Colorado. I'm convinced of that because I think we need to recover a biblical understanding, not only of the gospel, but also of what God has called us to. He has called us to endure unjust suffering without bitterness and without revenge in our heart. We need this message because hurt people hurt people, and Christians are no different. When we get hurt, we hurt people. When the world mocks us for our belief in the Bible, we are defensive instead of confident. When the world calls us bigots, simple-minded, unloving, hate mongers, we're surprised instead of heartbroken. When we're hurt by people, we lash out to hurt instead of wearing the stripes like our Lord. We need this message today because the central, central tenet of being a Christian is suffering for doing good. We, know, we need to know that the Lord is seen through our lives and specifically how we react when we suffer. So we're going to go through this passage and we're going to talk a bit about, uh, about subjection to authority, being subject to authority. We're going to talk about the victory that frees us as well as our motivation during unjust and just suffering as an example to follow, and the example to follow, which is obviously Christ. So, verses 13 through 17. Be subject to the government. Why? Because God put it there. 
We are fortunate. Our government is not like the government at the time of this writing. Our government is much more merciful. Um, the government has two purposes in this passage. The government is uh, to punish evil and to reward good. We are fortunate because our government, as godless as it may seem at times, is still under the almighty hand of King Jesus, which is as all governments are. Do all governments define good and evil the way that God defines good and evil? No, they do not. But Peter still says what he says. God still gives us the imperative to submit to the government that is put under us. Because God is above the government. Because the authority that the government has has been granted to them by our almighty God. The question is not which laws do I like or which officials line up with my value system. But the question is, is the government commanding me what God clearly forbids? And vice versa, is the government forbidding me from what God clearly commands? The disciples that were preached to by the gospel in this passage, um, they, they preached the gospel in response. The disciples, out of the 12 of them, we know for a fact that eight of them suffered and died as martyrs for preaching the gospel. And one lived as a martyr before dying of old age alone on an island. The disciples preached the gospel when they were commanded to not preach the gospel in Acts. I pay my taxes. I would assume and hope that you pay your taxes, even though we did not vote for the tax amount that we pay. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament did not bow to the idol when they were told to, but they stood up to him in in defiance of worshiping an idol instead of God. But up until that point, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were astronomically good servants of the government that they served under. The government that enslaved their people. God gave them the command to go into the nation that has enslaved them and work in the city. Do good for the city. And that's exactly what they did. They drew the line at forbidding what God commands and commanding what God forbids. They did not worship the idol. I would submit to you that that is the line that is clear. When that line is clear, that is when That is how we work out our obedience to the government that is put upon us. Does the government command what God has clearly forbid? And does the government forbid what God has clearly commanded? So why should we obey obey this government? Um, Or any other government that we're under, no matter what planet Earth, or what country on the planet Earth we live in. And I would tell you it's because God wants to put to silence the ignorant fools who oppose him. That's not my word, that's in Verse 16, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Not only the foolish people that are subjecting you to unjust suffering, but also the foolish people that are praising it and have put it in power. When we do good, when we've been done evil against, God is praised. God gets his glory. Peter goes on. Live as people who are free, free from slavery to sin, free from the chains of death, and free to obey Christ and worship him without regard to consequences. Consequences are are a great motivating factor in life. That's actually one of the purposes in the passage about the government, is to punish evil and to reward good. 
consequences are given for what you have done. Non-Christians are forced through their self-imposed slavery to sin to obey sin. They have no way out. The only way out is Christ. But up until that point, they have no choice but to be a slave to sin. Dead people do not rise up and make themselves alive. A living God rises dead people and makes them alive and then free to, to him. Free from sin. Free and we can be free in Jesus and in life from ungodly restraint. What restrains us? What is the ungodly restraint? Sin and death. We are living as servants of, the God, of God in verse 16. That's why we are given freedom. Not as a cover-up for, for evil. Not so that we can continue doing what we were doing before we were saved by Jesus. But so that we can live servants as servants of God. Peter anticipates the suffering of the church and reminds them that the government is God-ordained. And that even though it often rebels against him, he wants us to, through the gospel, rise above the mess that is humanity and show them where salvation actually comes from, which is Jesus. This is about mission. Surprise. This passage is about living lives through unjust suffering that reflect the hope that we have that is in the next world and in the ultimate authority, and not in this life and the authorities that are here. But we must obey them up until that point. God commands in verse 17, after stating this description of the government and purpose of it, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. So first we see that this is given to all human beings, both good and bad. And this explanation is best given by John Piper, so I would would encourage you to to review that. But first, we see that the command is given to honor everyone, both good and bad. And there's a basic respect for people, a basic honoring of who exists, of the humanity in other folks. We are commanded to do that. The way you respect a scoundrel like Judas and the way you respect a saint like John or Peter would be totally different. But respect is given nonetheless. There is a way that we respect someone who is doing evil for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the humanity that is in them. Um, But it is different than the way we respect, say, our mother. It will probably not mean that the word scoundrel should drop out of existence in the way that we respect them, but how you use it will be profoundly changed. Second, we see that there is a special love that is given to the brothers. The brotherhood, the fellowship of Christians, the body of believers. We are commanded to honor everyone and then to love the brotherhood. Love Christians. Third, we see a reverence of God. We should fear God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. It reminds me of what they say in Gladiator. Fear your God. This fear is a reverent fear. It is not an enslaving fear. It is not even a fearful fear. It is a reverent, awe-shaped fear of who God is and what he does. We are commanded to honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. And then again, we're told to honor the emperor. We bow down to God as absolute authority over all emperors and all governments. But then we must honor that emperor, honor that president and that government, regardless of who they are and what they do, because God placed them there. 
he must be honored. This first comes to our absolute allegiance to God, and next comes our affection and love for the believers, and then comes our honor to the king and non-believers. Keep note that the president is not God. No president is God. No king is God. No government, no oligarchy, no governor. None of them are God. God is God. And so we treat them differently. We fear God with a reverent fear, and we honor the emperor because God put them there. Keep in mind that the gospel is being preached in the city of Rome, which is where Nero was the emperor. Peter was writing this to Christians who were enduring an incredible amount of suffering. But the gospel was being preached as they were suffering. The fear of God in the gospel is freeing so that we may have no other fear of any authority over us. Jesus says in Matthew 10, So, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be shown. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So who is the one that we should fear? It's not Satan. Satan is not ruling over hell. Hell is Satan's prison. He was sent there and will be sent there and is bound. It is not his dominion. He will not rule there. He is subjected there. So who then should we fear? It's God. Jesus reminds us that we need to keep our authority structure correct. We need to understand where authority actually comes from. It's from God. Our governors are not governors because they want to be. They're there because God wants them to be. Jesus says this in his last few conversations with Pilate. You are not here because you want to be. I am here because God wants me to be here. And you are here because God wants you to be here. Jesus submits himself to the authority of the Roman government that ended up killing him out of a respect and honoring and fear of God and out of an honoring for the government. In the gospel, we are free from all fear of other humans. We are free from fear of our schoolmates, of our teachers, of our bosses, of our neighbors, of our parents, of our siblings. We are free from fear of all other people so that we may embrace the fear of God, the reverent, awestruck humility of who God is, what he has done, and what he is going to do. Okay, so Peter, Peter may get a response like this. Um, the purpose of the government is to punish evil and reward good. What if I'm punished for doing good, Peter? And Peter anticipating this because, again, he's writing to people who were preaching the gospel in Rome and were being punished for it. Peter anticipates that and that reminds them that the government is God-ordained and that even though it rebels against him, he wants us to rise above that. Because the government is the highest authority on earth, the principle of our relationship to the government applies to all of the authorities under the government. This means that we should be subject to not only our state authority, but also to our bosses, also to our work managers, to the people who are above us in our jobs, uh, to the refs at our soccer games and football games, to the cops that patrol our streets. We should be subject to the elders of our church. 
This principle is an authority from God, and it should be respected because it is in place by God, and it is for our good and for his glory. And as Peter writes to these Christians, they may continue to object. And what Nero did to them is almost unimaginable. Um, He became emperor of Rome at 13, and for maybe uh, 12 years, everything seemed to be fine. Um, But around A.D. 60, Nero started to freak out. He literally started to kill his family. He killed his mother and he had his wife put to death because he was afraid of people taking over his emperorship, taking his throne. He then began, because the people started to rebel against him, he then began to persecute Christians and blame Christians for what was happening in the state. The Christians that Peter writes to were in fear of being filleted open and having their skin sewn to animals. They were in the God-appointed emperor of Rome is, was using Christians as lamps in his garden. They would burn at night so that he could go out and relieve himself. This is the God-ordained government and the, the people that Peter is writing to. He understands what they're suffering. And yet he continues to say that God has placed them over you. Peter feels for his Christian brothers and sisters and yet reminds them of this calling as Christians. In verse 20, he said, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Essentially, if you mess up, you should accept the consequences. That makes sense. That's the rule. That's the purpose of all governing authorities. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you leaving us, leaving them an example so that we might follow in his steps. The calling that, Paul is ta- that Peter is talking about in this passage is a call to accept unjust suffering. The calling is also, as a Christian, to renew cities, to preach the gospel to our friends and to ourselves, to love God first, our Christians second, and our non-believing brothers and sisters third. This part we like. That's a good part. Preach the gospel. Know Jesus. Love God. But the call does not stop there because the gospel does not stop there. The gospel is offensive. And when we preach the gospel, it offends the very core of what it means to be human. We've rebelled against God and need hope and help. And the gospel preached to non-believers. That does not feel good. Good night. It doesn't even feel good to me to feel that, that I'm wrong and need Jesus' help all the time. But when we preach the gospel, non-Christians react by repenting or react by attacking. Hearing and feeling and knowing the suffering of the Christians he's writing to, Peter implies, implores of them to remember Christ. To remember Christ. Who suffered not only the most horrific physical death possible, But he also suffered under the full cup of God's wrath poured out on him. The word excruciating was invented to describe the physical and mental pain that happened to a person on the cross. Excruciating, the cross emptying itself out on a person. This describes the physical and mental pain that Jesus went through on our behalf. But there was also the spiritual pain of enduring the sin that we've all committed as well as every person who's ever lived. Jesus suffered a spiritual abandonment of God. He suffered literally the pain of hell in our place. 
He committed, and, and yet he did this, not because he deserved it. Jesus did not deserve my punishment. He committed no sin, and, verse, and neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, even though he had hosts of angels on his side, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus understood the authority structure. He understood that the holy otherworldly judge of who God is, the Father on high in his throne, is the ultimate judge, and he will judge justly. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, so that in him, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus suffered unjustly, and in that unjust suffering, he turned to God and trusted God. How much more, Peter is saying, how much more, Peter is imploring, can we trust him when we're passed over for a promotion because we believe in the Bible? How much more when we're fired for sharing the gospel at our workplace? How much more can we trust Jesus, because he's been through the suffering. When we get uninvited to the barbecues of all our neighbors. Because we talk about Jesus. How much more can we trust him who endured the pain and suffering of the cross on our behalf and earned our love and earned our life? When we're hurt, how do we respond? Do we respond with the gospel? That would be a miracle. That's literally what we're asking for. That's literally what Peter is praying for and, 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 and imploring to happen to these people, to these Christians who are enduring Nero suffering. He's praying and asking for a miracle to be done in their hearts and a miracle to be done in our hearts. When this happens in us, God is doing a miracle so that we might live in light of the gospel. It is not our obedience to truth that allows us to respond to suffering in a godly way. You can obey as much as you want, and you may still have a heart of stone. It is the miraculous work of Jesus that changes one's heart and allows us to respond to suffering in a godly way, like Jesus did. It is not a fun thing to talk about suffering, and yet I'm smiling. I want you to smile too. When we suffer, and you will suffer, a storm is coming. When we suffer, hold fast to Jesus. He is our only hope. He knows the ins and outs of suffering. He knows your pain. When our closest friends hurt us, and when our spouses seem to turn on us, we must again return to Christ, the shepherd and overseer of our souls. We must not plan to hurt back when we are hurt. We must not seethe with bitterness against those who hurt us as we sit, knowing that we shouldn't be bitter and knowing that we shouldn't hurt back and still being bitter and wanting to hurt back. We must implore on behalf of the gospel, on Jesus Christ's blood, to give us a new heart so that we might be transformed. I've experienced it few times, not often, not a lot. But when we're hurt, our human sinful reaction, even as Christians, is to just punch back, just fight back. There's no peace, 
There's no patience. There's no trusting Jesus. We just knee-jerk back. Sometimes, and we won't go into this today, but sometimes it is a godly thing to do that in defense of the defenseless, in defense of self. But most of the time, we must respond as Jesus responded. The only way we can survive this life in this culture, in this city, is to trust Jesus. The only way our friendships, our marriages, our children will make it to the end of our days so that we may pray and enter our rest peacefully is through Jesus. We will suffer, but we must not respond as people who have no hope. The world expects us, literally, the world, your bosses, our friends, my neighbors, expect us to get angry when we are hurt. That is the natural condition of the human heart before Jesus. Philippians gives us a, a command in a similar way. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and any sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, Paul is talking about connecting with other believers around the union of Christ. Rely on one another together to pursue Jesus. We cannot do it on our own. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours not in yourself, not by your own will, but in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not fight for himself. He fought against sin and the dragon on our behalf. But he laid himself out to be a sacrifice for us. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant By being born in the very likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself on purpose with a purposeful purposeness. He did it on purpose. He thought about it, he planned for it, he waited, and he acted in humility on purpose. This wasn't something that just happened. God planned it from the foundation of time for things to go the way they went and the way they're going now. There's a hope that the planner knows the plan and we can trust him. Jesus trusts him. He, give us, he gives us an example to follow by trusting the judge because the judge created. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father bit of a tangent. That verse right there, I believe, is why we as Christians don't end up naming our sons Jesus. In the, in the Islam faith, the most popular name, and literally around the world, the most popular name of people is Muhammad. But this verse, God decreed that we should not name our sons Jesus, because that name is above every name, because that name has authority. When we pray to our God, we pray to Jesus. When we're asked who we follow, we follow Jesus. When we're asked why we don't fight back when we're fired for preaching the gospel, for talking about Jesus, we say it's because of Jesus. He did not fight back either so that you might know God. 
Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. So that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. We are on a mission together to see the earth bow before the king. We have an advantage. We know he wins. So that helps us on our mission. That helps us and gives us hope as we suffer. As pain and the effects of sin afflict our bodies, we suffer knowing the end game, knowing the whole story. So when our insides cry out, this can't be tolerated, that's not fair. When we know we've been wronged against because we're a Christian, we do cry out, but we do not cry out against the people who have wronged us. We cry out on their behalf. We cry out for them. Jesus prayed on the cross, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I pray for us that we may look at the people who afflict us and pray, forgive them, Lord. They don't know what they're doing. Our suffering here is different than it was 2,000 years ago. At least right now it is. Around the world there are people suffering just like they did 2,000 years ago. But here, us in Denver, we have a different suffering. And that suffering that is physical is yet to come. And until it gets here, we will endure the suffering that we have. We will preach louder. We will love better. Love will actually win because of what has happened on the cross and who he has made us. When I'm being wronged against, you don't see me fighting against the speeding ticket because the cop doesn't like my bumper sticker. When we're turned down again, we feel anger and anger for justice, but we must trust the judge because God will judge. And we pray that our enemies who afflict us, we pray that they would not be our enemies for very long because we know that they will get judged. Heaven and hell are forever. They happen once. We get one chance at this life. The people that we interact with will not die. We will all live forever, either in separation from God or with God. When we turn to God like Jesus did in his suffering, we abandon our old self who is dead to this world. Peter talks about earlier, we are sojourners and exiles from this world, awaiting a far better country, a place that is perfect, where we we may run free to worship God and enjoy him forever. We will actually see the truth and the beauty and the goodness of the gospel. When we suffer, it is for God. But when we fight back, it is for us. So I would implore you, do not fight back. Endure the suffering like a good soldier, like a family member wrought by blood with an inheritance with God. Remember that you are headed to the perfect place, the place where we may enjoy God forever. The gospel takes us to that place now and gives us a taste of that place now. So as Jesus preached, I preach, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Implore your neighbors to repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What he is doing started like a mustard seed and will grow into a a tree and will grow into a nation, will grow into a perfect place. Embrace your Savior as one who knows suffering and can rightly and perfectly embrace you. We're going to take the cup and the bread here in a moment. It symbolizes the body that was broken on our behalf and the blood that was spilled on our behalf.
We preach the gospel in New City Church because that is our only hope. (laughs) That's why we're sitting here today to worship so that we may one day worship again. I encourage you to take a moment and repent of your sin before the Lord. Accept the communion and the peace that he offers and then come and take the blood that was spilled for you and the the body that was broken for us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the hope um, that we have. Please help us to believe that hope. Would your hope affect us? Would your hope change who we are? Would your hope change our very hearts, not our actions, because those must come after our hearts are changed. So Jesus, change our hearts. Father, change our belief in you. May we know that our friends must know you. May we know that our friends would be better knowing you, that they would have more fun, that they would enjoy you, God, but we would all suffer together at the foot of the cross, knowing that you suffered first and foremost for us on our behalf so that we might die and so that we might live. Jesus, as we head into this time of of a family meal, um, eating together and enjoying food, may we feast, may we have fun, May we know each other. May we know you better. Send us out into this week. May we, that we may enjoy you because that is what we ultimately desire, you. Use us as tools in this world. Change our lives. Change our hearts. All these things we ask because you are on your throne and you are king. And that is enough.